danger is stealing in as relapse sums above the den. It's hard to know if this will Hello and welcome to episode 333 of the Thinking Poker Podcast from Owings Mills, Maryland. I'm Andrew Brokus. I will be joined shortly by Nate Mavis in Melrose, Massachusetts, and by the one and only David Sklansky in Las Vegas, Nevada. People get upset when I say that our guest should require no introduction, so... I will tell you that David Sklansky is one of the most influential, uh, I started to say authors, but probably just one of the most influential people in poker, period. Um, Certainly one of the people who had the largest impact on my own personal poker development. He's the author of many poker books, including The Theory of Poker, Sklansky on Poker, and most recently, Geeking, Grifting, and Gambling Through Las Vegas, which is uh, not a poker strategy book, is rather a, well, he describes it, um, that the, we, we start the interview talking about the contents of the book. It's a little difficult to put into a nutshell. Um, it is part autobiography, part memoir, a lot of stories of David's life in the gambling world, um, not just as a writer and as a professional gambler himself, but also is a consultant to a uh, large casino owner, uh, but also some of David's thoughts on a variety of topics. Um, it's just interesting to get inside of the mind of a person like David. You know, I say a person like David Sklansky. There are no people like David Sklansky. When I think about why we started this show, David, by the way, was our guest on episode three hundred. Um, kind of a milestone episode for us, and having David on the show was a big deal. When I think about why we started this podcast, and you know, a big part of why poker is interesting to me is that you do get these kind of fascinating and really unique people in the poker world, and it's hard to imagine someone, I mean, I, I, again, I'm trying to say someone like David Sklansky, it's hard to imagine David Sklansky existing. Uh, anywhere other than in the poker world. Um, if you have if you don't have a strong sense of his personality, you know, definitely listen to this episode. It comes through clearly. Um, he is just an incredibly unique person. Um, the way he thinks about things, the way he explains himself, um, I just, I find him fascinating and interesting and funny and smart and uh yeah i mean it's just like i said he, he was a big influence on my own thinking about um poker and gambling and, and probably even to some degree the world and uh yeah it's just just very cool having him on the show and uh i enjoyed the book a lot as well i think there's uh it, I mean, it's, it's fun it's a quick read none of the stories are long it's just a bunch of, kind of short um some of them are interesting some of them are funny some of them are insightful uh there's just a lot of neat stuff in the book so i would encourage you to check that out as well uh geeking grifting grifting and gambling through las vegas 
bring you some strategy in just a moment, but uh, here's a plug we haven't had in a while. Um, you can get more strategy from a former Thinking Poker podcast guest and all-around tournament crusher Ryan LaPlante on his site, learnpropoker.com, and you can help out the podcast while you're doing that. We've got an affiliate relationship with them, so you can go to thinkingpoker.net slash LPP. That stands for Learn Pro Poker. thinkingpoker.net slash LPP. You can sign up for, uh, you can get some free content from them there, and you can also uh, sign up for a membership. I just watched some of their videos yesterday in anticipation for playing some big tournaments this weekend. And um, yeah, I mean, it's just, I, I like the way that Ryan thinks about poker. He's very, very much in keeping with my own thinking, which is that he's knowledgeable about game theory. He's informed by game theory, but he's very willing to deviate from it and do exploitable things and thinks all the time about how to do exploitable things and um, explains that to you. So I would encourage you to check that out, thinkingpoker.net slash LPP. Uh, today's hand is coming to us from Ryan. This is a 1-2 No Limit Hold'em game with buy-ins of $200. They're playing seven-handed. Ryan, sitting with $197, is dealt Queen of Clubs, Jack of Diamonds in the Big Blind. Under the Gun limps, Hijack limps, Cutoff limps, Button folds, Small Blind completes, and the Hero checks. Uh, stacks are all over the place. Um, our hero has 197, under the gun has 165, hijack has 710, cutoff has 168, and small blind has 72. So effective stacks will likely be in the uh, 85 to 100 big blind neighborhood, uh, unless we happen to get involved with the uh, small blind who has only 35 blinds. Uh, regardless, it's a limp pot, so it is a relatively high stack-to-pot ratio. $10 in the pot, our hero holding Queen of Clubs, Jack of Diamonds, and the flop is Six of Diamonds, Nine of Diamonds, Jack of Spades. This is a five-way limped pot, so top pair, Queen Kicker, Jack Nine, Six, Two-Tone Board. Our correspondent says, uh, I flopped top pair, third kicker with backdoor straight and flush draws. Overall, a pretty marginal hand, which may be best currently or could be crushed. And if best now, is certainly vulnerable on many runouts. Small blind checks. I considered betting or check slash evaluating, potentially calling a single flop bet or folding to more significant action. Betting certainly won't fold out better hands, but it will potentially get value from worse, Jack-10, Jack-8 suited, some 9x, and draws, and will also protect against slash deny equity to hands with overcards or weaker draws that may not stick around in a multi-way pot. I opted to bet $8. In hindsight, this is a large proportion of the pot, but I felt that with the pot being small, a smaller percentage of the pot may not accomplish as much equity denial given the perception of a small absolute bet size. In any case, I think betting the flop may have been a mistake regardless. Only cutoff calls, so that means 85 big blinds effective. Uh, he's a loose player that likes to splash around in many pots. His calling range includes anything as weak as 9x to as strong as jack x and clearly various draws. I would expect him to raise two pair, sets, and monster draws such as an open-ended straight flush draw. So I'm going to give you the whole hand, then I'll come back to analyzing the thought process on various streets. 
heads up to the turn, $26 in the pot. And what do we have behind? Uh, one... 58 behind. So 26 in the pot, 158 behind. Turn is the seven of hearts. So the board now six of diamonds, nine of diamonds, jack of spades, seven of hearts. Our hero holding queen of clubs, jack of diamonds. He says, I do not think betting this turn accomplishes much. This card does not improve my hand slash range and has more potential to improve his. I opt to check for pot control and will likely fold to a sizable bet. He checks back. River, still $26 in the pot, is the queen of spades. Final board, six of diamonds, nine of diamonds, jack of spades, seven of hearts, queen of spades. Our hero has queen jack for top two pair. He says, I was conflicted on whether to value bet or check to induce a bluff. I struggle with this decision often when my opponent's range based on earlier street action includes a mix of worse made hands and draws. I can likely only get value from the former by betting and the latter by checking. I opted to check call, thinking that the missed flush draw is the most obvious bluff to induce, and I am uncertain whether he will call with marginal one pair hands on this runout. He bet $25, and after I called, he showed King Ten of Clubs for the nuts. Alright, so let's go back through this. I think preflop is pretty uncontroversial. Four players, including an under-the-gun uh, player, have limped. Queen-Jack offsuit in the big blind. Uh, we're plenty happy to see the flop. I don't think we really want to make the pot larger. I don't think we have great prospects for just taking it down immediately with a raise. So I like checking. Go to the flop. $10 in the pot. 166 in what's going to turn out to be the effective stack. So 17 uh, stack-to-pot ratio of 17. Quite deep. Uh, and because it's a limp pot. And the flop is jack 9-6. Two-tone, hero has queen-jack. So right away, um, I like the way our correspondent is breaking down his options. You know, I think he does a good job of saying, here are the two things that I considered. I don't think he's always made the best choice, and I'll talk through that, but I do think that, I mean, that first step is so important, and a lot of people don't take it. The first step is just recognizing that you have more than one option and then trying to weigh the options against each other. And once you do that, you can get better at doing the actual weighing process. But you know, I think so many people just rush to a certain option and they think, oh, I have top pair, I have to bet. There's draws on the board, I have to bet. Um, I have a draw, I have to bet. You know, Whatever it is, people have these rules for themselves. And I, mean, I think it's just, it's so valuable to make sure that you're considering two options and, and comparing, or more than two, but I mean, at least two options, and you're comparing them to each other and trying to decide which one is better. Um, so the way that Ryan breaks this down, he says, you know, I can bet to deny some equity. I can bet to get called by some worse hands. Um, I, I would not bet here. And the main reason is that even though you can get called by some hands that you're ahead of, let's think about what happens on the turn. Now, obviously, I mean, the turn is a seven of hearts. It's not it's not a blank, but there's not a lot of blanks on a card on a board like this one. I mean, most turn cards are going to either pair the board, make a straight possible, or put an overcard to your pair out there. I mean, the turn would have to be a two, three, or four, or put a flush <laughs> diamonds. So it would have to be like an offsuit two, three, or four. There's there's nine turn cards that aren't going to either pair the board, make a straight possible, or put out an overcard, or I guess the queens. Right, so there's twelve possible turn cards. Um, there's just like the majority of turns you're going to want to pot control. I mean, if, if the hero is, and we'll talk about whether that's the right decision on the turn, but if you're not going to feel good about your, your hand on the seven of hearts turn, you're not going to feel good about your hand on most turns. 
So what's happening is that, you know, the hero is betting and getting called, and then on the turn he's thinking, like, oh, I don't want to make the pot larger. And I don't think this is an especially bad. I think this is kind of an average turn. And on an average turn, he's thinking, I don't want to make the pot larger. What that's really telling you is you probably didn't want to make the pot larger on the flop. You know, you know, in a five-way pot, like, yes, we can name hands that you'll be ahead of when called. But importantly, you know, one of the hands that he mentions is draws. It's not at all obvious to me that you want to get called by draws. This is something I think people... Uh, I just think in general the way a lot of people think about draws, and honestly it's the way I used to think about draws as well, I don't mean to say like, you know, <laughs> to, to, to set people apart or something, um, but like just because you're ahead now doesn't mean you make money by betting. Being an equity favorite is not the, the be-all and end-all, right? I mean, we all kind of roll our eyes at people who, you know, when they make comments like, oh, well, you know, I was ahead pre-flop or I was ahead, you know, like complained about getting drawn out on. Like, it's, it, 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 poker is not all about um, who's ahead on the early streets, right? I mean, it, it, it's a five-street game. Um, and especially when there's a lot of money to be, to be bet behind, like, we're not so much concerned. I mean, if you think about it, the flop is an $8 bet. That's what the hero ends up betting on the flop, $8. And there's going to be $150 left in the effective stacks after that $8 bet. So we need to be a lot more concerned about making good decisions where those $150 are concerned than we do about making good decisions where those $8 are concerned. And you remember the, the hero actually said that he thought he might um, fold to a big turn bet when the seven of hearts came. And that's part of the danger of betting and getting called by a draw. So let's suppose that, that we do bet this flop. The flop is jack of spades, nine of diamonds, six of diamonds. We bet, and we get called by a draw. We don't know which draw, but we get called by a draw. And we're a good favorite against most draws. I mean, if the, if the draw is like 7-8 or um, two diamonds without an overcard, like we're a pretty good size favorite against those draws, equity-wise, if, if there were no further betting. The problem is there is going to be further betting, and your hand is going to be very difficult to play on later streets. You should think about this hand as kind of the equivalent of like, I don't know, king-7 offsuit preflop, where... I mean, you might call a raise from the big blind with king seven off. Probably not. Um, even though, like, you, you could be facing, let's say, the you know the, the button opens the three and a half big blinds, and you're holding king seven off in the big blind. I mean, there's a good chance you have the best hand. Like, he's a button raiser. He could easily be opening like nine eight suited or something. Like, you might well have the best hand, but your hand is going to be very difficult to play at a position on later streets. And and despite the equity that you have, you're going to struggle to realize that equity, and you might be better off just folding it. That's kind of the situation you're in here when you have top pair without... I mean, he's got a little bit of a draw, but not that much. Like, the backdoor straight draw is decent. That's a pretty nutty draw. But, like, the backdoor flush draw, it's to the fourth nuts. It's not It's not worth all that much. Um, so mostly what the hero has here is, is you know, a one-pair hand, a marginal hand that's going to continue to be a marginal hand on later streets. It's not going to get a lot stronger than what it is now. I mean, he happened to river two pair, but obviously that doesn't happen too often. And, you know, even when it did happen, he still lost. So what's going to happen, you know, he bets and he gets called. We can pretend that we know we're being called by a draw. And now the turn is the seven of hearts. So that's a scary card. I mean, some draws get there, some like two pairs get there. And I understand why the hero might want to just check fold on the turn, which he says he might just fold to a sizable bet. But diamonds can make that bet also. When we check here, if I'm the villain, I'm going to bet $20, $22 into a $26 pot when I have two diamonds, because I know that that seven is scary for you. I know that you're probably betting stuff like queen jack on the flop, and you're not happy to see that seven on the turn. And I'm going to take advantage of that. I'm going to bet at you with my draws. That's what I mean when I say 
Some hands realize equity poorly and some hands realize equity well. Those of you who have read Play Optimal Poker, this is polarized and condensed ranges. Queen-Jack is always going to be kind of the equivalent of a king in the ace-king-queen game. It's, it's a marginal hand that doesn't really want to make the pot larger and is not happy to face big bets. Whereas draws, having a draw is like having an ace or a queen in the ace-king-queen game. Because with a draw, either the draw improves and now you have a hand that's strong and you can value bet it, or the draw misses and you know your hand is weak and you can bluff with it. So who has the advantage in the ace-king-queen game? Is it the player with the king, or the player with the ace or the queen? The player with the condensed range, or the player with the polarized range? Right, it's the player with the polarized range. The one whose hand could be either weak or strong is gonna play better than the player who's stuck with marginal hands. And that's what you're doing when you bet here. You're making the pot larger, and you're setting yourself up to play at a disadvantage in the ace-king-queen game on future streets. You're going to be at a disadvantage later, and so you're not real interested in making the pot larger. Because when you do get called, you often lose. Either you, get, you lose because you're already behind, or you lose because you get drawn out on, or you lose because you get bluffed out. There are lots of different ways that you can lose after making the pot larger. I mean, yeah, there's a decent chance you're going to lose if you check, but there's also a decent chance you're going to lose if you bet. It's just it's hard to win a five-way pot. And I think people are too concerned about um, you know, really wanting to make sure they win when they have the best hand. That's not the goal of poker. The goal of poker is not make sure you win the pot every time you have the currently best hand. Like, the goal of poker is make plus EV decisions, especially when it counts, especially when the pot is large. And so you need to plan ahead for that and think, am I setting myself to, up to make plus EV decisions by betting this flop? Now, I don't think the flop bet is terrible. I just, I mostly I just want to question whether it's really in your interest to get called by draws. Um, the more that your opponents are loose and passive, the more that you can profitably bet this. And it does sound like our hero is playing with a lot of loose and passive players. Certainly, this particular villain sounds like one. Probably the other ones. I mean, everyone limping pre-flop you know, suggests this is a loose and passive uh, game, as most 1-2 games are. Most, most poker players are too loose and too passive. It's just a matter of degree. So we do get some good information. I mean, betting and getting called by only one player, that's a pretty good outcome. I mean, we are getting some valuable fold equity from the bet. Not getting raised is great. I mean, it is likely that the villain is going to raise if he currently has a hand better than Queen Jack. And I think that Ryan is doing a really good job with his hand reading when he acknowledges, okay, it's pretty unlikely that the villain has a better hand than mine, like, given that he didn't raise the flop. So I feel pretty good about my hand. And then the question is just, how much does a 7 change things? Um... A little bit. I mean, 10-8 gets there. The villain may not have 10-8 offsuit in his range. He might only be playing 10-8 suited. That would help. He's probably not playing 8-5. He might have 7-6. He might have 9-7. I mean, there is stuff you're losing to here. The question really is, I guess the, the part that I take issue, so again, the turn board, 6 of diamonds, 9 of diamonds, jack of spades, 7 of hearts, and our hero has queen of clubs, jack of diamonds. So still just top pair on what's now a pretty coordinated board. There's a lot of draws out there. There's a lot of ways that Queen Jack could already be behind. There's $26 in the pot, 156 or so in the effective stacks. Um, I would bet planning on folding if raised. I think there is still a fair chance Queen Jack is good. There are still a lot of second best hands that'll call bets. 
stuff like 8, 7, 9, 8, 10, 9, Jack 10, um, Diamond Draws, you know, like, and we are a bigger favorite against those hands now than we were on the flop. On the flop, part of the problem with betting on the flop, which I might not have done, part of the problem with betting on the flop is that you're not that big of a favorite against a lot of those hands. They still have two streets where they can draw out on you. And you're going to have the disadvantage of having to play out of position on two streets. On the turn, your equity has gotten better against any hand that didn't improve. Now those hands only have one more street in which they can potentially draw out, and you only have to worry about playing one more street. So you're closer to showdown, that increases the value of your marginal hand. So if I bet the flop and I didn't get raised, I would feel pretty good about that, and I would just bet the turn. And if I got raised, I would fold. And if I got called, I would draw the same conclusion that I drew on the flop, which is I probably still have the best hand. He's probably going to raise the turn if he can beat queen jack. And then I'll have to play the river, which, you know, that's what poker is. <laughs> Sometimes we get in some, some kind of tough spots. The main thing I want to take issue with, and I'm sure some of you have heard me mention this before. It, our, our correspondent says, uh, I opt to check for pot control. Pot control is not something you can do from out of position. Checking, when you're out of position, checking does not control the pot. Checking gives control of the pot to your opponent. Checking says to your opponent, here, you make the pot larger if you want to. If you'd rather take a free card and keep the pot smaller, you can do that as well. So let's think about the hands we want the villain to have in this case. I mean, Ryan rattled some off on the flop. He said, Jack 10, Jack 8, 9x. We're still ahead of all those hands on the turn. We'd like to bet to get value from those hands. If we check, what are those hands going to do? Most of them are probably going to check behind. They might bet, but they're more likely to come. I mean, they're certainly calling a bet. They may or may not bet themselves. But again, we leave that up to the opponent. He gets the bet if he wants to. And it sounds like Ryan might fold to a bet anyway. So, I mean, he might end up losing the pot if those hands bet. What happens when we check is we let the villain pot control the hands he wants to pot control. The player who's in position gets the pot control. When he checks the turn, he guarantees no money goes in on the turn, we go to the river. You don't have that power when you're out of position. When you're out of position and you check, your opponent can still just bet if he wants to make the pot larger. And he can do that when he has hands better than queen jack. You know, if he, if he did make the straight or mid two pair, he can bet. And he can do it as a bluff. He can do it with two diamonds. He can do it. I mean, he could do it with 8-7 and turn 8-7 into a bluff. Make a big bet. That's betting a polarized range. That's what it is. He bets both of those hands, and that puts us in a bad spot. So in the ace-king-queen game, we don't ever see... And that, that simple toy game from Play Optimal Poker. We don't ever see the player with the king bet. Marginal hands don't like to bet in the ace-king-queen game. Real poker is more complicated. And part of what's complicated here is that we actually can get called by hands we're ahead of. In the ace-king-queen game, when you have a king, you can't get called by a worse hand. Right? A queen is never going to call a bet. Queen is the nut low in that game. In this game, there is a fair chance we have the best hand. So we can bet and get called by hands that were behind. I'm sorry, get called by hands that are behind us, hands that we're ahead of. Uh, the decision to bet here is definitely based on the fact that the villain is loose and passive. And this is going to tie into my river analysis as well. When your opponents are loose and passive, the way you exploit their looseness is by value betting. 
not by checking checking rewards or i mean checking rewards their passivity <laughs> more so than their looseness but checking doesn't punish their looseness right? if their mistake is they call with too many hands then you want to give them the opportunity to make that mistake by betting and that's also why I think the flop bet is not so bad. Against better players, I would hate the flop bet. Against weaker players, I mean, it can be okay because people are too loose and they'll call with hands that they shouldn't. And so there's more value in betting than there should be. And you won't get bluff raised very much. <clears throat> so, And the way you exploit their passivity, um, one of the main ways you exploit their passivity is by folding when they show a lot of interest. Um, it's particularly valuable that I don't think you're going to get bluff raised. Not on the flop, not on the turn. One of the dangers of betting the turn, in theory, should be that your opponent might raise you as a bluff. I think this player is unlikely to do that. <clears throat> I think most 1-2 players are unlikely to do that. And it's hard to do. I mean, what's to stop you from having a strong hand? You bet the flop, you bet the turn, why can't you have a set? Why can't you have two pair or a straight? Right? All those hands are, are thirdly in your range. So your queen-jack is kind of protected from getting raised by the fact that you're showing a lot of strength. You can still get, you'll still get called by plenty of hands that you're ahead of. You'll deny equity to not very much, but maybe a few hands. You'll deny some equity. And you don't really have to worry about getting raised. If you do get raised, it's an easy fold. You're not, you're not giving away much by, by uh, folding to the raise. And betting enables you to get value from those hands that you're ahead of. When you check, you let the villain check behind whether it's the jack-10 to pot control, or in this case, the king-10, where he's taking a free card. <clears throat> Either way, you let him do that. You let him have what he wants. Now the river, our hero makes two pair. And again, I like the way he sets this up. I like the way he says, um, you know, I struggle with the decision whether I should value better check call. Because there are two different kinds of hands the villain might have. He might have a misdraw, or he might have a marginal hand that's worse than mine. I mean, there's also the possibility he has a better hand, but you know, if we're going to put one bet in the pot either way, either we bet or we check call, that doesn't terribly much matter. Either way, we're putting the money in the pot against the hand that's better. So I think it's good that um, Ryan is expressing this in terms of targets, <clears throat> that he's saying, I can either bet to target marginal hands, or I can check and, check and call to target misdraws. Um, so let's come back to the idea that this is a loose and passive player, which is my read. Ryan didn't say that, but I'm, I mean, based on everything about this hand, this is a loose and passive player. Um, a loose and passive player is going to call too much, and he's not going to bet as much as he should. Which means we don't want to be inducing bluffs against this player. We don't want to be checking and calling because he's not going to bluff as much as he should. I mean, he had a, he's already had a chance to bluff. He could have, like, if he had a draw, he could have bet the turn. He didn't do it. I mean, it turns out he did have a draw that he didn't bet the turn with, but, like, it, it, misdraw should become less likely as a result of his turn check because it should be very tempting for him to bet if he has a hand like Ace Five of Diamonds or King Ten for that matter. It should be very tempting for him to bet the turn with those hands to try to steal the pot. So, I mean, just from a hand-reading perspective, I'm more inclined to think he has a marginal hand than a misdraw. I think Ryan's right. We have to make a decision. Do we want to proceed as though he has a marginal hand, a bluff-catching hand, or proceed as though he has a misdraw, a bluffing hand? So I, for, first, I think from a hand-reading perspective, his play is more consistent with a marginal hand than with a, a misdraw. Uh, checking the turn, calling the flop and checking the turn are both actions that condense his range. They make weak hands less likely. 
weekends have incentive to fold the flop, they have incentive to bluff the turn. He didn't do those things. Less likely he has a weekend, more likely he has a marginal hand. Marginal hands also just combinatorically are more likely. There are a lot of ways to have jack-10. There aren't so many ways to have diamonds. There's only one way to have ace-five of diamonds. Even with you holding a jack, there are still eight ways for the, for the villain to have jack-10. One of those is diamonds. Seven of them are not. So he's going to have jack-10 a lot more often than he has some kind of diamond draw. Most of his diamond, or many of his diamond draws will have a pair. Right, he could have um, paired the seven. He could have paired the queen with his diamond draws. And if he didn't, I mean, he could have a straight sometimes. He could have five eight of diamonds or king ten of diamonds. I mean, there's not a lot of ways for him to just have two diamonds that don't make a straight, that don't make a pair. There aren't that many combinations of those compared to how many combinations there are of, like, dominated one pair hands. Now, again, if you're saying, I don't think he's going to call this river bet with worse... I mean, first off, it's not really consistent with him being a loose player, which he probably is. But secondly, that again gets to the point about then, like, maybe you shouldn't have grown the pot on the flop. Like, I, th I just keep coming back to the hero bet the flop ostensibly for value, but then doesn't really feel that good about continuing to put money in the pot after betting the flop. Which then kind of, well, what does that mean to say you bet the flop for value, but then you don't feel good about your hand anymore? That, that's the indication that maybe you shouldn't have bet the flop. That's the red flag. If you do bet the flop, then you should be proceeding as though your your hand is good, especially when you river two pair, and now there's some stuff that you can beat. When you check and call, you're turning your hand into a king in the ace-king-queen game. Kings don't make money in the ace-king-queen game. Kings, they're, they're just trying to like claw back their equity share. <laughs> they're not actually making money by checking and calling. Um, your opponent, it's not enough to say my opponent might bluff if I check. He needs to bluff out of proportion to the amount of value betting that he's doing. Right. The, the question is not, will he bluff if I check? It's, is he more likely, which I, and I guess this is how Ryan framed it, is he more likely to call a bet with a marginal hand, or is he more likely to bluff with a weak hand? And that's partly a question of player profile, like does this player call too much or bluff too much? Most people call too much, most people don't bluff too much, most people don't bluff enough. Um, so just baseline, you know, you're better off trying to exploit looseness than trying to exploit aggression. Passive players are passive. But also, it's a question of combinatorics. Even if the player does have a tendency to bluff too much, we still have to ask how likely is he to even get to the river with a hand that would want to bluff in the first place. Um, missed flush draw is just not that likely. There just aren't that many combinations of it. That's the bottom line. I think people focus a lot on draws because... For whatever reason, they like loom large in the in the poker player's imagination. You know, we see those draws and we just zoom right. Oh, he probably has a draw. He called. There, there's. A, I mean, even before the bet has been called, you know, people just see a draw on the board and right away they're thinking like, oh, what if he has diamonds? What if he has diamonds? You know, and I don't mean this. This isn't Ryan. I'm just saying this is this is people in general. Um, yeah, I mean, combinatorically, there just aren't like it's way more likely he has one pair. It's a lot easier to make one pair than it is to make a draw. And I think that's what you should play around. So I do think you should be betting the river for value. Um, I mean, I guess I would call the river bet when he when he bets, but like I'm not excited. I'm not excited about it. What you're really when you check, what you're really hoping for is that it goes check check. And when it goes check check, it's because he has a marginal hand. 
So, I mean, you don't have to bet huge on the river. If you're worried about him not calling with Jack-10, just bet, like, there's $26 in the pot on the river. Just bet, like, $10, $8, whatever. You know, he'll call something. If you bet small enough, he'll call. This is a good lesson, not just for Ryan, but for everyone who's listening. You really need to get out of this habit of defaulting towards the passive play. Of letting your, for whatever reason, people seem more comfortable letting their opponents control the pot. Saying, I'll just I'll just check and I'll let him do the betting. I'll check and hope he keeps betting. That's giving your opponent control. You want control of the pot. When you have strong hands, you want control of the pot to make sure it gets bigger. When you have weak hands, you want control of the pot to try to push out stronger hands. Um, I mean, medium strength hands are the hands that you want to check. And I guess the problem is the hero is inconsistent in how he's treating his hand. On the flop, he treats it like a strong hand, and then on the turn and river, he starts treating it like a medium strength hand. And that's, that. I guess, that's really the crux of it, is that inconsistency. I wouldn't necessarily have bet the flop, but once I bet the flop, I would bet the turn and I would bet the river. And if we decided to play it as a strong hand, play it as a strong hand. If you're going to play it as a, as a medium strength hand, then don't grow the pot on the flop. Because if, if you grow the pot and then aren't comfortable with your hand, that means you weren't value betting in the first place. Thanks for writing, Ryan. Sorry that you lost the hand. Hopefully it's proved instructive. I hope the rest of you have found it useful to listen to this as well. I hope that you'll enjoy our interview with David Sklansky, one of the most unique and fascinating people in the poker world. One other note about this interview, uh, Nate was uh, had, had something come up, um, so he missed the first 10 to 15 minutes of the interview, and you'll hear him uh, come in and uh, join us about 15 minutes in, but that's why initially it's just me and David talking, and then, uh, sorry, it's just David and I talking, and then uh, you'll hear Nate come in and join us. And don't forget thinkingpoker.net slash LPP to sign up for learnpropoker.com. Enjoy the interview with David Slansky. David Sklansky, welcome back to the show. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us again, and thanks for this new book. I really enjoyed it. Well, great. Glad to hear it. Um, so it's quite different. I guess it's it's maybe kind of similar to Do You See Why, but obviously it's quite different from uh, some of your other uh, your your more poker strategy oriented books. Um, I found it a very entertaining read, which I think was was kind of the point. But do you want to say a little bit about why why you wanted to write a book of this kind? And I guess you know, for, for people who, who aren't familiar, like what? Uh, how would you describe the book? The book is um, hits on about five different types of subjects. Uh, basically, I've had many different thoughts in my mind over these many, many years, and some I've written about and some I haven't. Um, some of those thoughts have to do with uh, old-time Vegas and my exploits and some of my adventures, and some of those thoughts have to do with ideas that I've had. I basically uh, 
I mean, the title of the book is Geeking, Grifting, and Gambling Through Las Vegas. And uh, the book has anecdotes that are, that are interesting. Then there's other anecdotes that are what you might call tell-all and uh, bring up people's names who, uh, you know, pretty well-known names who have done certain things or said certain things and maybe they, people don't know about and would like to know about. <laughs> and they, they might, in some cases, be things that uh, these uh, celebrities wouldn't have wanted to be exposed, but I did it. And then there's a few uh, a few anecdotes that go even a little bit worse than that, where where there's some wrongdoing involved. And then there's um, then I, I sprinkle into the book something similar to some of the things I've written about before about my ideas involving gambling, and also my ideas that it, and involve uh, non-gambling. And they usually all are tied in with uh, logic. And, and probability, in other words, most of the the ideas that I've come up with over the years uh, are uh, at least somewhat mathematically related. Not always. Sometimes it's just common sense. And I put it all together, and I have something that that I call a semi-autobiography, but it that doesn't really describe the book all that accurately. It's uh, various chapters. The w one thing that would describe it would be the the table of contents. That's uh, that. Uh, you read the table of contents, and you get a better idea of uh, what's in it. And I, I get but that they're basically. I, I, I think yes. you said this this pretty explicitly, but that um, what you really wanted to do was to share those the, the latter couple of topics, the ideas about um, both gambling and and non gambling uh, related to logic and, and probability. And that the, uh, the the kind of juicy stories or gossipy kind of things that are in there, it, it's a bit like a Trojan horse, right? That you you sort of want that to be the entertaining part, but you're hoping that um, you can convey these ideas about logic to your your reader. Is that fair? Well, kind of, yes. I even I I think if I remember correctly, I I analogized it to John DeLorean, who. Some of you may remember had started his own car company with this like silver car that looked a little bit like a Corvette, and uh, he was running out of money, and so he started selling cocaine, or he was considering selling cocaine, and uh, but it had nothing to do with that. Even Steve Wynn, I was was the other analogy, who I think mainly was interested in building beautiful hotels, but realized that he wasn't going to be able to pull that off unless they had casinos. And it's the same thing here. I had, I, uh, the thing I'm most interested in doing is, is sharing some of my thoughts about, uh, about many different things, but, uh, people have a tendency to, you know, to be, to like the National Enquirer kind of stories. And I, I happen to have a bunch of National Enquirer kind of stories. So I thought, well, I'll put those in there too. Why would uh, that so important to you? Well, because I believe that for one reason or, or another, I have the uh, ability to come up with um, thoughts that after people hear them, they'll say, 
Of course, why didn't I think of that? But for some unknown reason, um, people are set in their ways in a way that I'm not. And I think it may have to do with the fact that when my, that my father started teaching me to think outside the box at a very, very young age. And, uh, and, and, and I'll think about a, something that's happening and I'll go, wait a second, what's actually going on here is this or that or what could be done to fix it. I, and I, I, sometimes I say to myself, well, I don't understand why a lot of people haven't thought of these things. But I mean, just as a simple example, um, which I think might be an important one, is they talk about getting people who were unjustly convicted out of jail well, why not uh, for those who are rotting in jail for years who are actually innocent, why not offer complete amnesty to the, to the person who actually committed the crime if he will, if he will uh, turn himself in and, and get that guy out? That, that, to me, that is just so obvious, and yet the only person I've ever heard voicing that opinion. I'm sure others have had it, but the only person I've ever heard write or talk about it is me. And these things just sort of like come to me. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm lucky. I was born to parents that were, ex had extremely good mental genes. And, uh, and, and unlike the average person who is, who was born to such parents, I didn't go on to, you know, get, go to graduate school and do the things that people uh, of that ilk tend to do. I, I in, instead, because of, not because of anything good about me, but because of some bad things about me, I decided to become a professional gambler and rub elbows with all kinds of nasty people. Or, and so um, I've had a fairly unique life and I thought it would make for uh, both my ideas and my stories would make for a good book. You, you didn't mention this anywhere in the book, but in the, um, the like blurb on Amazon, when you go to look at it, you describe yourself, or the, I don't know who wrote this, but whoever wrote this describes you as um, a math nerd who overcame mild autism. Um, right. Which I feel like is probably related to, you know, when you say these things seem so obvious to me and I don't know why other people don't understand them, I would, I would guess that it might just be related to your brain working a bit differently than uh, what we might call a neurotypical brain? I suppose so. Um, now, the mild autism, um, I don't specifically use that term inside the book, but the way that I describe myself, I'm sure that if a, psycholo a psychologist was reading the book, he might, he might uh, use that term. Now, I use the term mild autism because the... But, because they're no longer using the more specific term of Asperger's syndrome. Mm -hmm. And uh, now, interestingly, I, I've taken two tests online to, to see whether I have Asperger's syndrome, and I miss by I missed by one point in both tests. In other words, one more question has had been the other way. They would have said that I had mild Asperger's. However, I believe that uh, had I taken those tests. 40 years ago, I, I wouldn't have escaped the diagnosis. I actually went out of my way to uh, try to see what it took to, to, uh, to escape that diagnosis. Like one of the things you'll notice in the book that uh, I'm not being very complimentary to myself, but it, but it is an interesting thing. What I did when I was 
10, 11, 12 years old is I realized that I was, um, I didn't look at the world exactly right. I didn't, I was, I was a little bit odd and it was hard to make friends. And so what I did is I, I sought out the most popular kids and offered myself up as somebody they could cheat off of on their tests. And what, what would happen would be that those students, uh, they were willing to overlook my, my differences, not just because it, not just because I helped them do well on a test, but because they thought it was kind of neat that I would even have thought of that. And so I started to become friendly with people who were not like me, but who actually kind of liked the idea of being friends with me because it was like, um, I don't know, a trophy to be, I'm with the, I'm friends with the smart, the, the really smart kid in the, in the school, you know? So, and I actually, these, and then, and then strangely, unlike, I'm, I'm sure other high school and junior high school kids might have thought of the same thing, but then strangely, I then moved into an area where I could continue that strategy as an adult. Right, yeah, I mean, I, I By think point, of your, um, your, your relationship with Bob Stupak is sort of a similar, you're providing... Uh, I mean, he's not cheating off of your homework exactly, but you know, you're you're making a lot of money for him with your right. uh, with your nerd brain. Yeah, I, 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 there was one historical figure who um, who did something similar. I don't know how talented he was in math, but he must have been pretty good. His name was Abba Dabba Berman. Have you ever heard of him? Probably not. I have not. Have you ever heard of Have you ever heard of Dutch Schultz? No. Dutch Schultz was a uh, one of the early mafia type guys. I, I, he uh, in the 1920s he wound up being murdered, of course, but uh, he made his money by doing something uh, called selling the numbers, the numbers racket, where where P, he would, they would go around to the neighborhood and people would choose a three digit number, and if that three digit number matched the last three digits or something like that of the handle at Aqueduct Racetrack in New York. They got paid six hundred to one, but of course this is nine hundred ninety-nine to one, and they only got paid six hundred to one. Well, what Dutch Schultz did—he he had a, and a very nice edge, but he still didn't like it if somebody who happened to make a very big bet on a number, where we could destroy him, for, you know, at, at those odds. And he found this guy Abadaba Berman who had came up with some sort of algorithm, I don't know what he did, but some sort of algorithm where if there was a number like 257 that was bet highly, or maybe it was a certain dates that were bet highly on certain dates, he knew of a way to make bets at the track so that that number couldn't come up. So that's all this guy did, this guy Abadamba Berman, and he was getting paid an insane amount of money to make sure that the dangerous numbers didn't hit. And that's the only other example that I know of where uh, somebody is doing something, is working for somebody who's doing really bad things and just, but all he's doing is using his math abilities. I'm sure that actually, that actually happens all the time. I mean, in fact, tax attorneys, I'm sure, are basically doing the same <laughs> yeah. thing, right? But. But I mean, to a lesser extent, it's happening all the time. 
uh, what's his name? The guy Michael Cohen, I'm sure, was is sort of in that same was in that same category. Yeah, I, I think that's a Trump's fairly fairly common dynamic. But in, but but I but with me, it was a little bit more uh, surely mathematical, and um, and the people I was working with were more clearly outside of the normal uh, normal life. Let's put it that way. So those are some of the stories. Then, of course, I have stories about people that uh, that are well known, and in some cases, did things that were uh, were dubious, and in a couple of cases, did things that were outright wrong. And um, I knew about it. Very other, very few other people knew about it. I happened to know about it because of uh, some flukes involved, where I I knew somebody who decided to clue me in on almost everything that was going on in the, in the seventies and sixties uh, and eighties uh, in Las Vegas. And, uh, I write about almost all of them when there's even some doubt, even a 1% doubt, I don't use their name. Uh, but so some of the stories don't have, don't have a name mentioned or they have a fake name in, in many other cases though. I know for a fact because of, of the truth of what I wrote about, it. and and in those cases, I I use the name. I mean, one of the obvious examples is Jackie Gone betting a million dollars with Bob Stupak that he would not win the mayor's race when he when he ran for mayor. The, the Bob they bet. Bob bet that he would, and and Jackie Gone who owned the El Cortez, and his son is now a very big shot in Las Vegas, but Jackie Gorn was one of the pioneers. They bet a million dollars. And now there's an example of something that is either not illegal. I don't know, I'm not sure it's illegal to bet for two people, two private people to bet, or whether the candidate himself betting, I, I really don't know about the law, but but um, I think most people think that it's not supposed to be done. Yeah, it doesn't sound but right. the, but, but But on the other side of the coin, these guys were never even thought about it. I mean, they never, if you really think about it, who's, who's, who's harming whom he's betting Bob Stupak's betting on himself. Well, the only reason why there was some harm is because there's a chance that Bob, um, didn't even care that much about being a good mayor, but just cared about winning the race so he could win the, win the bet. But this was one that I mentioned names and there as did you read the whole book? Did you get a chance to read everything? Yes. I've, I've read every word. Okay, and then you then you remember that I said in the book that the reason why I didn't worry about saying this is secondhand knowledge is because the million dollars that was transported to <laughs> to Jackie Gorn was in my hands, right. in my hands. So, uh, sorry, by the way, I don't even remember. Can what? I interrupt you for just for one second? Uh, Nate Nate just showed up. I just want to add him to the call. Okay. David was just talking about uh, Bob Stupak's million-dollar bet to become mayor, and um, the other thing. I'll and I was mentioning that the reason I felt like I could divulge it, even though I don't didn't divulge names when there was even the tiniest doubt, or if I heard it secondhand. Uh, the reason I could do this one is because the million dollars that Bob lost to Jackie Gone was. Um, in a suitcase that I was that I delivered. 
in a briefcase that I delivered. It doesn't actually take as much room as you think to, to fit a million dollars in. But, uh, and, um, you know, I don't remember if I put something in the book or not. I know I had considered it and I don't have it in front of me. But one, one little side anecdote was that when we were on our way to, the, to see him, we went into a restaurant and Bob excused himself and went to the men's room. Did I put this in the book? Do you, do you it remember? It does not sound familiar. He excused himself. Okay, well, I guess I had considered it. I said, ah, that's not that. Maybe I should have, but he, he went to the men's room, right? I'm sitting at a booth by myself. I mean, all the, at all the times he was with me. But for, the, for these three minutes, I'm sitting in a booth with a million dollars in the briefcase next to me. And I'm thinking, what, you know, anyway. <laughs> so I, there, there were other anecdotes. As, after the book was published, at least four or five times I thought, oh, I forgot to put that in, I forgot to put that in. I've had, I've had a lot of uh, little things. Nobody, though, I should mention, not one person who was mentioned by name has disputed what I wrote. Not one. And the reason, of course, is because they can't. It's all true. Without, you know, some people think I might have exaggerated or maybe even made it up, but that's just those people who don't understand that I wouldn't do something like that. Everything in there is either exactly like it happened or is, to the best of my knowledge, almost exactly the way I described it. I remember you saying that you know part of the reason you were comfortable with um, with Bob Stupak making this this million dollar bet and with you potentially helping him to to win it, even though maybe he didn't care about being a good mayor, was that you thought you could help him be a good mayor, that you would be essentially a good uh, mayoral advisor. Right. I mean, there was the people who he was against would have been, I mean, it was, they, there was nothing about them which would have indicated that they would do anything interesting or ingenious or creative or anything. These were people, and of course I believe that about 95% of all politicians, I, I believe that the politicians are, are, are chosen from a group of people who are mediocre, to be blunt. Mm -hmm and are not apt to come up with any really neat ideas that uh, could be helpful. And um, the people who are running for mayor of Las Vegas were especially in that category. And in fact, there was an idea, again, I don't remember whether I wrote about it, which book I wrote about it, but when, when I had a um, meeting with Steve Miller, who was on the city council, to discuss the issues of the city, which I was then to summarize for Bob. During that two-hour meeting, when it was over, he said to me, you should be mayor. And one of the things I, I do remember about that meeting, that I, I don't even know whether I might have been the one to, to have caused this to happen, but it's now all over the country. It didn't used to be, but because 30 years ago, when you got to a when you got to the left turn lane of a of an of a intersection, you were um, there. If it was a busy intersection, it would be a red light, a red arrow, or a green arrow. And if it was a non-busy intersection, you were on your own, and you could just uh, you could just turn. But I suggested to Steve Miller that you know there are 
there are intersections that are, that are on sort of like borderline. And why not have a flashing yellow arrow? Have a green arrow so you can turn all the time if you need to turn left. But if but at other times, um, put a flashing yellow arrow there, which signifies be careful, but turn. And now that's all over the place. So this is just an example of why I think that, um, I mean, basically, I'm of the opinion, and of course, I get a lot of heat over this, but I'm of the opinion that people who have to make decisions in almost any walk of life, whether it be turning left or whether it be going for a first down or whether to take the pin out of the hole when you're, when you're chipping from out right outside the green or whatever those things are, that you would rather have someone who's good at the general method of making decisions than someone who's just done that, has, has a lot of experience, but is just blindly following the norms without ever bothering to think, might there be a better way? So being mayor is one of those categories. I mean, I, built, I it didn't even occur to me that I wouldn't be able to come up with stuff for Las Vegas if Bob won. If Bob won, the, I was going to persuade him to actually be the mayor and do a good job. That's why it never bothered me to be part of all of his schemes to become mayor because I actually thought that Las Vegas would be better off if he did. And that's, you know, that's pretty much a, an allegory toward a lot of the different things that I've done over my life. The, um, I mean, arguably the, the biggest, like juiciest bombshell in the book, although it had already been discussed on, on two plus two. So, I mean, it wasn't a, a surprise to me, but, um, the, the allegation, I guess more than allegations. I mean, it sounds like you're certain of it that, uh, that Chip Reese was cheating. Yeah. By the way, the biggest allegation in the book is one that I'm not, is that I'm the least sure of, but the, but the biggest allegation in the book is that the, is that the mayor's race was actually won by Bob Stupak. Oh, that's true. And that, and that the and that and that Ron, according to to Bob, I'll get back to Chip in a minute. But according to Bob, Ron Lurie admitted to him that the Mormon Church and maybe others were involved in in uh, fixing the election and that he actually won. Now, Ron Lurie is still still alive, and as far as I know, no one has officially asked him whether that actually happened. I don't know for sure. Bob could be lying to me, or Ron could have actually been lying to Bob, but common sense says that both those things are big underdogs. So it's very likely that it happened. And that, if that's true, then we're talking about a, a very major crime and a very major scandal. But no one seems to care that much. As far as Chip Reese, it's not even, it's, they talked about it because because I wrote about it after he died. The fact is that even the people who were most annoyed at me for writing about it admitted that it was almost certainly true. Nobody claimed it wasn't true. I mean, I think there was one person who sort of claimed it. It was, it was common knowledge. And the only thing I really did was make it from common knowledge to very common knowledge, plus 
I also put in something that maybe I shouldn't have, which was that I was slightly skeptical about his conversion to it, but he himself admitted it. He, he admitted it. He, and, and I knew it, I knew certain segments of it for a fact, for a cold blooded fact, not for, not secondhand. Most of what I knew about what he did was secondhand through this fellow that I go into some detail about in the book. I don't mention him by name. I call him Mark. And uh, Mark staked me in blackjack. And Mark also was staking crooked poker games and was, and was telling me about them so that I would not get myself cheated. And, um, but I also, you know, I was privy to a few conversations that made it a hundred percent, not, not 99%. He did, he did cheat and he did run the dunes poker room when it was doing flagrant, terrible cheating, such as pulling, bringing in cold decks, bringing in, bringing in cheating dealers and with 99% certainty, um, putting in cameras on the ceiling, stuff like that. So he, but he admitted it later. And he, I mean, he, he, he said that he did it because he had no choice, et cetera, et cetera. And that once he became, and then he finally put his foot down and, 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 and just wouldn't do it anymore. And then once he became religious, he was, he was, um, totally out of it. But the actual allegation wasn't mine. I didn't, I didn't, uh, reveal anything that wasn't already very well known in the poker community. Some people just didn't, um, didn't get that. It sounds, I mean, from Hello? the way you tell it, it sounds like most of the big poker games in, uh, in Las Vegas at that time were crooked. I don't know exactly which ones were. I know, and then there was also in, in Las Vegas, it was also an odd uh, culture, which was that um, there were people who were honest. I guess it's sort of like cops now. They talk about how the, there's bad cops and, then the, and, the, and the ones who, and the good cops, and then other people come back and say, but wait a second, wait a second, the good cops are letting this go on, they're, 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 they're turning their heads the other way. They're not reporting the bad cops, so they're bad too. And then the counter example is, or the counter argument is, well, they have to do that because they're gonna, if they snitch, they're gonna be out of a job or they may get themselves killed when, when no one has their back, et cetera, et cetera. It was sort of like that in, in Vegas back then. There were many players who, were not involved in cheating poker games, but they knew about it. They knew about certain games and they stayed away from those games because the, the, uh, the strategy of the cheaters was to cheat the tourists. If you think about it, when you're uh, in the old days, if you were a cheater, you, there was plenty of, uh, customers who were tourists who they would never see again. And, and in order for them to have games to, to be able to do that cheating, they needed regular players. And so at the, so what they did is they, 
they uh, didn't target the regular players and maybe even went further than that and and told the regular players, don't play in this game. Or if you're in the game, I'm not going to do anything to you. And the regular players, they want to beat the tourists too. They don't want to cheat. But uh, they know that if they, you know, if they turn in the cheaters and they, who knows what's going to happen to them. And that was, that was the situation. So there was an in-between there was an in-between category of, of professional poker players who didn't cheat, but who were not going to get involved in the cheating of the, uh, of the tourists. That I don't think, I, I, although I don't know, I don't think that that's something that goes on now or for the last 15 years, but that's what was happening back then. I knew a little more detail than most about what cheating was being done and which games, but there were plenty of regular players who, who were, were pretty sure. In a lot of cases, you could spot the situation. You go into the Stardust and the same four players are starting a game every day. Those four players are colluding. They're starting the game and they're hoping tourists come sit down. And when the tourists sit down, they, uh, they collude against them. The regular players don't sit down at that table. They know they've seen those same four players every day starting the game. Now we're talking 40 years ago. So uh, I want to make that clear. Now in the very biggest games, uh, who knows? One thing though I do know, and another thought that went through my mind that for some reason doesn't go through most people's minds, is the idea that a person who, if they're not playing poker, can make $18 an hour, and if they are playing, and if they are able to make $70 an hour by cheating in poker, and the people that they're cheating are still gonna be richer than they are after they after they cheated them, for them to not, for, for the average person to not realize that it is not rare at all for a person to say, you know what, I'm going to cheat at poker and make $70 an hour rather and feed my family well, then get a regular job and make $18 an hour. Especially because the people I'm cheating, I'm not cheating anybody poor, they're still going to be rich after I'm done. So the idea that to, uh, to think that when you went into a 15-30 or a 30-60 poker game, that there weren't players who had decided they were going to become colluders because they were not well-educated enough to get good jobs. To, to think otherwise is unbelievably naive. And um, there were even honest players who, as the games got tougher, said to themselves, well, I can't win enough now playing honestly. Now I gotta, I gotta find a partner or whatever. And to think that they wouldn't do it because it's dishonorable is, uh, I mean, there were some who felt that way, but the other people, uh, many other players rationalized, hey, wait a second, this guy's a millionaire, he's playing against me, and I can find my friend, and the two of us can collude against him, and it was always obvious to me that if people didn't cheat, that in many of those cases, it's only because they were worried about getting caught, it wasn't because they thought it was dishonorable. And that was the way it was back then. I don't know exactly what's going on right now. The, the, the concept may still 
be more prevalent than we would like to believe, but who knows? Um, on this show, I've often put forward the argument, which some people hate, but nobody ever gives me a good reason why it's not a good argument, um, that it requires a lot of infrastructure and institutional knowledge to prevent cheating. And that infrastructure and institutional knowledge may have existed 10 or 15 years ago in, in almost every major card room in the country. But now that a lot of card rooms are run by people who don't really understand poker all that well and dealt by people who didn't come up in poker, um, there's a lot of sloppy procedure and a lot of opportunities to cheat or angle if, if, if you know what you're doing. Um, combine that with the fact that many people will steal if they can. You have a situation where there really could be quite a lot of cheating, much, much more than there was 10 years ago. Uh, well, at, first of all, are you talking about live games? Yes. Are, are you, also, also online to a lesser degree, but I'm mostly talking about live games. Well, cheating is uh, can be separated into in collusion and and other more obvious things. Collusion is um, is almost impossible to detect if it is not done flagrantly, and the uh, the, the the willingness to do that, I think, has been. Um, has not d diminished, and, and and the thing that what what has happened is that is that people who who could maybe win even without doing it realize that if they do mild things, I mean, like take the simple case of I don't want to I don't want to go into too much of uh, how you how to collude because uh, for obvious reasons, uh, but but let's just say that in 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 a Omaha game, Parliament Omaha game. Two players who don't trust each other completely to, 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 to combine their money. Just two players who are otherwise rather good say that when they fold uh, when they fold their cards, they'll tell the other guy what they folded. That's all they do. But these were already winning players. Uh, I, I submit that uh, that these are the two best become the two best players in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Bus, uh, I mean, and, everybody, absolutely. Wait, I, I got. I, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, and and I'll I'll let you intensify your point. What if they only tell each other about the aces? They don't even tell each other all their cards, but just whenever they fold an ace, they have a system where you know ace of hearts, ace of spades, ace of diamonds, ace of clubs. They they signal that to their friend. How, how good do they? Well, become? I mean, I guess if you're already winning and you are smart so that and that you understand poker theory then um <clears throat> your anything that any extra information adds to it now now in the case of uh of online poker if two people do that by the way i'm i have i have to say that i think this is being done because well, anyway i think it's being done but if, if if you do that if you know four extra parts uh, you know, and it doesn't even have to be in someone else's hand. I mean, let's say you knew the, five, the four bottom cards of the deck. If you, if you knew the four bottom cards of the deck and you're playing, and you're playing uh, Omaha, you, and, you were, and you were previously the 1,000th best player in the world, you are now the best player in the world. You go from 1,000 to number one. 
You don't now if you're if you're a losing player, you'll still probably lose. But and if you're the ten thousandth best, then maybe you only go up to number one hundred and seventy. But if you're number one thousand, you become number one if you know four four cards. So many little situations come up, you know, involve. So that's um, unfortunate. Now there's ways around it, and there's and 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 you were talking about people knowing how to what to do about it. See, I think that um, the that many of these things could be stopped in, uh, with various uh, expertise, but I don't know. I don't know how many either live or internet sites really do have the expertise to uh, to spot it. Obviously, if you have all, only tournaments, or if you if you specialize in tournaments, then that's a different story. It's unlikely to come up. If you specialize in small games, it used to be the small games used to be. You could go into a, into a fairly small game and figure that the cheaters aren't there, but in, on, in internet poker, you have the problem that they could be playing 12 games at once, and, and they're happy making $3 an hour in each, in each game. Of course, there, if you're doing that, you're, you're not, probably not colluding, but, but that's a different, different subject. I don't know if you can make $5 anyway, instead of 3 per table. I mean, the same incentive is there to collude. Right, they might not be able to find twelve games to collude in, though. You'd have to have the same players. So, I mean, this. All I'm saying is one of the things that you saw in my book, and I mentioned that it may have cost me a lot of money over the years, is because I was aware of some of the things that were being done, and I knew that otherwise good players didn't need to do anything that strong in order to be insurmountable. I, um, when I would get into big games, I would, I would unduly concentrate on beating the tourists and play clearly what is theoretically too tight against the regulars with the idea that I wanted to play as few hands as possible against the regulars and I want to concentrate making money against tourists, which works fine up, up until you get to the very biggest games where you're lucky to have even one tourist in the game. Once you get to the very biggest games, you're... Your edge comes from the fact that you're superior and they're merely very good, and um, that's why I didn't usually play in nosebleed games, or, or even try to learn how to beat the very best players. Because the techniques that beat the very best players are not the techniques that you use when you're trying to beat normal games. Setting aside the, the issue of cheating and collusion, uh, you had some interesting suggestions about how to make poker um, either a more interesting or a more sustainable game, um, and maybe No Limit Hold'em in particular. Uh, so you mentioned like uh, you know kings and aces can't be showdown as a winner. You know they they can bluff, but you can't showdown the winner with um, with pocket kings or pocket aces. Or you mentioned the possibility of having. Uh, multiple betting rounds on on each street. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how you think those would improve the game, and, and what other kind of interesting ideas you have for uh, maybe making hold on or, or other other games, improving on them as games? Well, I do have the book in front of me. Uh, the two the two that you mentioned would not necessarily be my favorite ones, but I have the book in front of me, and I'm going to look right now. Uh, uh, do, do you have the book in front of you by any chance? Would you know what chapter I do, I do that? Um, 
Yeah, um, I've got it on my Kindle, so give me. Okay, I see when 59 says, so 59 says some free ideas for casinos and internet sites. And um, let's see. I mean, over the years I've had, I'm not even sure about how, which of these would in fact do well and which wouldn't. And therefore, one of the criteria that should be used if you're going to do this experimentation would be the difficulty in implementing it, you know, how hard it would, or if it's something you can try easily then, um, well, one, one I, okay, I have here, expose a few cards before the, before the hand, the deal, but you, <clears throat> Once you've entered, it has to be after you've already entered and you can't withdraw it based on what you've seen. So in other words, there'd be many ways of doing it, but before the hand starts, and you could do this for any kind of poker game, you um, turn over a few cards, just put them in the corner and, and keep them face up. That would also uh, make it difficult for bots. And, um, there's there's one idea, but now that one might not be one that that that's real popular for average people. Um, I mentioned things like uh, high will split with a high hand. This could only be done on the, on the computer. High will split with a uh, with a high hand gets sixty percent. So uh, obviously. The, the admonition to only go for a low becomes very debatable now. If the high hand gets 60 and the low hand gets 40. But I just sort of popped these things out of my head. I could, if, if it ever, if I ever was, you know, asked to become a consultant and come up with ideas, I probably could improve on these too. But there's just a lot of different things um, that, uh, you know, two rounds of betting on each street. Just a lot of pocket aces. Uh, some of my other books actually have more of these ideas. I don't, the one thing that I think the general concept that would work, except that people have become so set in their ways about no limit hold'em, but the general concept would be to make games less punitive toward people who play a lot of hands make it, or, or even worse, maybe go further than that, make it that you must play a lot of hands. In other words, antes, not big raises, different kinds of things like that where you're, where you're involved, where, where folding is not the, the, the very first thing you better learn is to fold a lot of hands. Find games where that is not the, the, uh, the you know, lesson, one, make sure you fold a lot of hands. And, and uh, you know, that could be stud. There's just so many different things that, that, that might catch on if they were only tried. But people, um, for one reason or another, don't want to try them. I mean, can I... So here's my mental model of what happened to Hold'em. And you might think it's wrong, but... Um, the boom happened. No Limit Hold'em got popular. Various people 
uh, said that it, it was totally unsustainable and that if you understood the first thing about poker, we'd, we'd realize that it would never die out or that it would never be sustainable. But the only things that ever really hurt it were like large-scale shocks like the UIGEA or Black Friday or a pandemic. Um, and then meanwhile, like the wind spread some weird European thing once with like some sort of limit. I can't remember, but like I remember Mason played it and he wrote this long article. You know, he's a very smart person. He wrote like, here are all the theoretical reasons why it's more sustainable. And I won't be surprised if this takes over and it's great to see all this innovation. And, and it died out. And that wasn't the only time something like that happened. And really the only thing that ever uh, made Nolan and Holdem anything less than very sustainable was just these huge external shocks. So what's, what's wrong with my mental model? The, what's partially wrong with it is that I think it was going to happen. It was a coincidence that the um, UIGA or whatever you're saying uh, is, it would have happened anyway to some degree. Actually, though, another thing happened. I mean, here's the thing is that the game theory and playing, playing algorithmically is, is uh, unbeatable. And, um, so now for small games, that's different. You know, I once wrote an article, a, a, a post where I called it the invisible ante. And what that was, was I said, that in, do you, are you familiar with that? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. What I basically said was I said that in the small games or there, there is a gentleman's agreement to pretend like there's an ante. If you go into if you go into a, a private game, and uh, you know uh, on the kitchen table, you're going to find people playing way more hands than they should, and I would venture to say that many, if not all, of those players know that they're playing way more hands than they should, and they partly justify it because well everybody else is playing a lot of hands, so I can get away with playing as long as my hands are just a little bit better, I'll I'll win. But I think the other reason is because they realize that they have to all play as if the ante was there, even though it's not, or the game is just going to suck and no one's going to want to play anymore. So that's, um, I, I'm not necessarily in favor of, of major changes. I'm not sure what game Mason was talking about. I don't want major changes. But what about what I just said? High, low, 60%. If you just one one day change the high low games to the high gets sixty percent, there that could easily I don't know for sure, but that could take off because now people would find better excuses to play more hands, and there's, that's the that's the bottom line is you need people who don't play expertly and who don't play tight to know they're going to win four out of ten times. That's what I think has to be done find ways where they'll win four out of ten times and they think the game is fun. So it's, but I don't think it's uh, necessarily that hard to do. Anyway, my book is only a slightly, it's only a slightly about what my book is. I noticed you, you also are not asking me about those uh, tell-all stories. We that talked, I we guess they, uh, which tell-all story did you want to tell? Oh, I, well, I mean, I don't know. Did, did any strike you as, uh, like I mentioned something about Bobby Bull and I mentioned about Larry Flint. Larry Flint uh, fixed the World Series, tried to fix the World Series, and 
Carl Icahn uh, being acting like a little kid and saying I'm so uh, so rich I won't you know so effing rich and just a lot of little things plus of course all those little exploits where I took advantage of casinos some of which I've written about before about how these people are uh, uh, willing to 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 offer uh, promotions that are ridiculous and they didn't even bother to ask anybody or for instance my my uh, my uh, anecdote about how I got Brennan's Hall to publish my book both the anecdote and the and the and the uh, what would you call it the, the, the when you when this uh, story has a uh, an ending that I forget the name is it's slipping my mind mind right well, okay, a moral to the story or whatever, that, that if, you know, you can change the equation of the person who's, who's putting a roadblock in your path because he's just looking out for himself. If you can change the equation where looking out for himself means that he's on your side rather than against you. That's how I got uh, the, my original book, Splansky and Poker Theory, into Prentice Hall by telling the editor that if he didn't accept the book and it became popular with another publisher, I would mention his name every time they asked me why Scribner published a book. I'd say, well, that's because when I first went to Prentice Hall, David Heinemann turned me down. And when I said that, his, his first words to me were, let me reconsider. This is the one thing about Trump that uh, it's hard to argue he has over some of more normal politicians. He's willing to pull something like that off. Now, the other parts about him are a little bit more debatable, but you know, a lot of people, when they heard this story about how I got my book into Prentice Hall, they thought that was nasty or wrong or whatever. No, it wasn't nasty or wrong. This guy, I knew I had a good book. And the editor at Prentice Hall, low-level editor, was worried that maybe the book wouldn't sell that well, and even and 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 then he would get in trouble. And if the book sold moderately well, he wouldn't get very much credit for it. So better to, to turn me down and uh, take no chances. So I switched the equation that the chance he was taking was if he did turn me down. Because if he turned me down, I, and I would have done it too. I would have done it. He was looking out for himself. He wasn't worried about whether my book was good and had some other publisher published it and done well. I would have mentioned this guy's name every time. Those are the kind of things that, you know, again, my the book goes from one thing to another to another. It goes on to all different kinds of things, including... I'm surprised nobody's asking me about the fact that a, that a gun was pointed at me five different times in my life. I mentioned four in the book. Got one. <laughs> or that so let's I, hear about <laughs> the one you left out so that people have an incentive to read the book. We won't, we won't give away what's in the book. Um, the one I left, no, I didn't leave it out for any good reason. It was uh, during, I'm not thinking about it, maybe I did put it in. I did put it in. Okay, never mind, I did put it in. <laughs> I was thinking about when I, the robbery when I got when I got robbed by, uh, at the dice game, and then later on, 
You know, it's when I talk about the two disosphores that I bet. Mm-hmm. The disosphore and, and yeah. By the way, the, those were two guys who, they, one guy could roll whatever number he wanted. I found out later. And uh, the other guy was a, was a, a world-class a card mechanic. And he called me up two weeks ago. <laughs> I call him in the book. I call him, um, I'm busy. I called him busy in the book, yeah. But I've had all these different, these, these wild little different uh, anecdotes uh, and uh, had people say things to me that, um, that like for instance, Bobby Baldwin said to me when he was turned down the first time by the Nevada Gaming Commission, I, I said to him, did they not realize, that they, were they mistaken about your situation in Tulsa? Or did they realize that you were telling the truth and they just purposely screwed you even though they knew you were telling the truth? And he said to me, they purposely screwed me. They knew I was telling the truth and they purposely screwed me. Because I can't prove that that happened, but because it was just me and him. Or the story about how he was, people thought that he was only even in a poker game and he needed to brag to somebody so he took me to his room and showed me $200,000 worth of chips. I thought that was kind of neat. He'd been slowly taking off the table so people wouldn't realize he was winning. He'd been, he'd been taking it off the table over a period of two days. And then there was the, you know, there were just a lot of little things. Thomas Gray, the reverend who admitted to me that he played, that he played poker even though he's, he was preaching against it. And... Um, I, I found that whole, that whole story interesting, actually, because I didn't realize that, that you had actually testified before Congress about, uh, about gambling. Yes, I testified before Congress, yes. Can, can you talk a little bit more about that experience? I mean, how did, you, how did, how did, you even, how did your name, name even come up as a potential witness? That's not actually an interesting story, but what happened was that they were going around the country uh, holding hearings about different kinds of gambling, and one of their stops on the road was uh, Las Vegas, and uh, Bob Stupak uh, made a phone call to somebody and said, I got a guy who you need to use as a witness. See, all I really did in the, when I was, when I was a, a witness was explain the odds on the various games and how you got the, dis, the advantages and disadvantages. And uh, the, the only interesting aspect to that particular testimony was that I, I, I made a big deal about what they call the big eight and the big six on the dice table. I don't know if you're familiar with that. And they may not even be on the tables anymore, but you were able to bet even money. You just put your money on the big six, and now you bet that six came before a seven. And that's an insanely terrible bet. But it's even doubly insane, because if you took the same money and and what they call place the six, they give you seven to six odds. The right odds are six to five odds. The right odds are 1.2 to 1. They give you, when you place the bet, 1.17 to 1. But when you bet on the big six or the big eight, which is the same exact bet, you only get even money. It's complete, complete sucker bet. It's disgusting. And when I, dis- when I mentioned that to the, to the nine people who were interviewing me, Terry Lanny, who was in charge of MGM, 
and wasn't supposed to be saying anything about his his own business. He he interrupted me and said, "I just wanted to let everybody know the MGM took that bet off." And I just thought it was a little bit undignified since he's supposed to be working for the government. Not these are the, all these little things that has, that happened to me over the years that that no one knew about or almost no one knew about. I just thought I would, um, you know, I would expose them. And yes, a good part of it was because I hoped that would help sell the book that would then therefore give, put my other ideas out into the world, handicap parking, et cetera, and all that. But also because they in themselves in many cases, I thought were, 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 uh, were interesting. I mean, and plus there were even the, 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 I guess we got disconnected. Okay, good. If I can yeah. hear you again. That's Welcome back. Okay. How well did you feel, the, the, the people that you were, uh, the people who are questioning you uh, or to whom you were testifying about the casinos, how well did you feel they, they followed arguments like this? I mean, did they seem knowledgeable enough about the industry to even understand the difference between those bets and you know why why you might consider it disgusting to offer that kind of um sucker bet like how well did they seem to understand the the details of of gambling well the there were nine of them and 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 uh, depending including three casino executives and there were uh, I tried to make it fairly simple. I wasn't really grilled very much about it. I was mainly it was a presentation. Okay. It wasn't, as I said, it wasn't particularly interesting. Uh, particularly the one, the interesting part about it, as I just remembered, was as I told you that the night before, Bobby Baldwin called me up and irritated me because I hadn't talked to him for a couple of years, and he he calls me up. He knows I'm going to testify the next day. He's already a very big shot in in. Bellagio, and he and he asked me a poker question. He asked me a poker question, and like, what was he doing? I mean, there, there's no chance that he was interested in poker question. But what he, but he clearly was, for one thing, worried that maybe I'm recording the phone call, and so he was trying to send me a message. Now, and, and I discussed this in the, in the book and I discussed why I'm irritated because I'm, because since he couldn't tell me what he wanted to say, it could have been a, a few different versions of, was he threatening me or was he just simply saying, you know, we've been friends for a long time. Don't forget it. Was it how I wasn't sure how friendly it was, but, um, I gave him a little bit of a hard time in the book about that. I didn't appreciate it. I also got a phone call from, that same night from the, the head guy at Harris, I forget his name now, um, but, and he actually asked me what I was gonna say on the testimony, I told him, I'm not gonna tell you. Even though I knew there was nothing special, there was nothing really that bad, I just didn't like being uh, asked about it. I heard that a lot of people were very nervous that I was gonna testify, because I could have, it could have uh, switched my testimony a little bit into into the fact that you have to be kind of dumb or mentally ill to be playing in casinos a lot. You know, if you're not, I, I, most of the people who are who are playing in casinos, you know, believe there's such a thing as false luck, believe there's such a thing as streaks, 
believes in, in the well with the maturity of chances or they're or they're they've got a psychological problem and i and and and, and casinos are uh frankly almost as bad as cigarette companies and except for for a certain type of customer who uh just enjoys uh you know playing small and maybe playing uh for well, just a little bit of time or whatever but but casinos would not survive on people like that i mean my pet peeve used to always be the the uh little piece of paper that they gave the baccarat players so that they could mark they could mark the the past what happened banker player banker player 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 and then they would bet depending on what they saw right well i mean isn't that that that's isn't that disgusting isn't i mean that's disgusting it's disgusting that people who have that much money are not, that we don't go out of our way to make sure that those people don't have that incorrect attitude. It's disgusting that you take advantage of them to beat them, but it's also disgusting that those people think that. And it's also disgusting that we don't go out of our way to say, Mr. Hakamoto, you have $3 billion, and if you believe that Baccarat can be predicted, then we worry that you might be doing other things that are not smart or as smart as you could be doing if you used, if you used your money in a better way. I, I mean, I, I just, it's, it's one of my pet peeves, that little piece. You know what I'm talking about, that little card they give those people? Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm thinking of the equivalent at, uh, at Roulette where they show you the, the last however many rolls. Well, they, <laughs> right, purpose. right. Well, that's a much newer thing. You're right. That's a much newer thing, and the day... That I saw that, I you know went crazy when they first started putting those things up. I went crazy. I mean, I think that it's almost should be illegal. I think that it should that that if if it was if more casinos were widespread, I think that that should very possibly be illegal because it's perpetuating something that it isn't a matter of opinion. It is disgusting. And when I, when I once broached that subject to somebody, they said, I think I might even have done it during the, uh, during the testimony, now that you mentioned that. And so and I think somebody said, they're asking for those cards. We're just providing a service. And that's what would be the answer to the, to the roulette also, is that they are providing a service. However, they are to the average person who's just walking by, what is that person going to think? He's going to think that that there's maybe some relevance to the previous numbers. Whereas, in fact, for the sake of the world, it's very important that people don't think that. There, are, I'm, I'm sure there have been horrible decisions made in this world because the person. Uh, Thinks, oh, I, well, just yesterday, just yesterday, I, it happened. I saw it on TV. They were talking about um, uh, a flood or something, and they were saying, oh, the earthquakes, earthquakes, and, and this might be a little bit different. They were talking about earthquakes in Los Angeles, and they were saying there's supposed to be an earthquake, like it's it's a 100-years earthquake. It hap happens once every 100 years, and we're already 80, in, 80 years into it. 
And that might not be a perfect, but that, no, this might not be a perfect example because there may be that, that things build up and build up and build up. Now I have, I'm about to finish a new book. I'm writing a book on very, very basic probability for people who way easier than even probability for dummies. I'm calling it probability for 12 year olds and maybe you. And one of the short chapters in this very short book talks about half-lives. And you may know that, I'm sure you know that half-lives remain half-lives no matter what's happened in the past. If something has, is going to decay with a half-life of 12 years, then after 11 years go by and it's, and it's not a, hasn't decayed, it's even money in for the next 12 years. Those last 11 years mean nothing. And that's the same as in gambling, or the same as, for instance, hitting a slot machine. So uh, this is an important concept. And um, so, so the truth of the matter is, and I've never tried to, dis to uh, disguise this, is that I have a lot of very bad feelings toward, the ga toward gambling. Very bad feelings. I like poker because, because it makes you think. But... Blackjack, eh, a little bit, yes, a little bit, no. It's because so much memorization. But everything else, most casino games are, uh, unless you can find an edge, are disgusting. That simple. And, and when I've occasionally brought mathematicians or math professors into a casino, I, I remember I brought a math professor into a casino who had never been in one. And he looks around after about 10 minutes and says, what are these people doing? You know, how is this even possible? And then, of course, it's the beginning. And that's only a small segment of a bigger problem. I mean, the average person has not learned how to think well. And it's not always because they don't have a high IQ. They just never even thought about coming up with thoughts that makes sense and that, are, and that don't, or aren't um, inconsistent with other thoughts. You know, if you think this, then you better think that. And people just, that's what they call, of course, people who don't do it, they, they use the word cognitive dissonance, but they use it as if it's, it's completely acceptable. The cognitive dissonance is something that makes you human. No, it makes you a gorilla. That's what makes you a gorilla, and that what makes you. What makes you human is that you don't have it. Anyway, I'm starting to get angry, and 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 uh, I got to calm down. So, so let's so let's look at the other side. Suppose suppose my son does not show an interest in games for whatever reason, just doesn't like them. Uh, what's something that's good for training thought? Like we talk about, you, you just mentioned a lot of things that are destructive of thinking patterns. And uh, you've mentioned some games that are that Our are games good are, involving, right? Well, you don't need games to be able to puzzles. In fact, the chapter three of my new book um, just gives an example of ten simple logic puzzles that my father gave me when I was young. He gave me a different puzzle almost every day, but puzzles um, that you know illustrate various ways of thinking about things that don't automatically, you know, jump to your first conclusion. If three men build three houses in three days, then four men build four houses in how many days, right? Mm -hmm. So some, many people will say four, when of course the answer is three. You know, just, there, but there's, 
there's just so many things that can train you not to just jump to a conclusion. You know, there's algae on the pond and it, it doubles in size every day. And uh, after 17 days, half of the pond is filled. How many days altogether does it take for the whole pond to be filled? And so many people say 34 instead of 18. Just anything, any of these kind of puzzles that will make a person approach things from, uh, are you asking this for a real reason? You have a, a, a child who doesn't yeah. like games and you... Oh, yeah, I mean, I mean, as it happens, I mean, he's, uh, uh, without saying too much about, yeah, you know, I try to be, try to be, try to be a good dad. I mean, as it happens, he's, yeah. he's three. So, uh, you know, I, I got to take well, it down. Three is even so I, younger I, than, three is even younger than they have. Did you happen to read the chapter, uh, where I mentioned those 10? Oh yeah. 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 They're good. Yeah. It, it, and what, what's striking is that I remember reading a lot of them myself in various puzzle books when I was, you know, whatever, 10 or something like that. Like a lot of them are, a lot of them are old chestnuts and, uh, my, my yeah, strongest well, I'm not, I'm, sensation, besides admiration for your father, that was that was sort of the strongest sensation I felt reading that. But number two was like uh, feeling that I was teleported back to the living room where I grew up and spent so many hours reading reading books of those old chestnuts on on uh, on the floor. Yeah, well, that you, a lot of those problems can be can be given to, uh, and you give it, and you and when you do tell the, him the problem. Show enthusiasm, even if you don't really feel like it. Like, can you believe that? Uh, this was amazing that he did it, and that way he, he. And if he gets it, you got to be really enthusiastic. So he, uh, so he has incentive to try to come up with, uh, with uh, different ways of. Um, you know, I did a problem on two plus two only a few months ago, which made me happy that I'm not senile yet. Because all the mathematicians did it and did it differently than me, and my way was, I still I still had it and I felt good about it. But but it was I will I, will, I don't know how much time we have, but I'll, I'll quickly tell you this problem: you have a roulette wheel, and you have a, a roulette ball, and you let's say you put the ball in the double zero slot, but the ball has paint on it. Are you familiar with this problem? Your ball has no. paint on it, and when you and you flip the coin. And you flip a coin and you move the ball one slat counterclockwise if you get ahead. And you and then or if it's a tail, you move it counterclockwise. And you continue to do this. And as you do it, more and more you'll you'll be visiting a lot of slats more than once. But each time you visit a slat for the first time, the paint gets into that slot. Mm-hmm. So the ball is moving back and forth. Uh, because according to your coin flips, and then eventually it will take many coin flips, maybe thousands, but eventually every single slat will have been visited and therefore painted. Got that so far? Yeah. The ball goes back and forth according to the coin flips. The question is about which slat is going to be the last one painted. And that could be any slash. I mean, it's true that the one that's right next to the double zero, the two that are next to it are even money to be immediately eliminated from contention. Uh, but even it could be, could it be even them? So the question is, Basically, for each slot, what is the probability that it will be the last one painted? 
Well, I'm going to give you the answer, and then I'm going to ask you why. The answer is that every slot has the exact same chance, the exact same chance of being the last one painted. In other words, they're all one out of 37. Any slot is one out of 37 to be the last one painted. You might think that it's less likely to be the one next to the double zero, but it isn't. The one next to the double zero half the time will be eliminated immediately, and the other half of the time the ball is going to be two slots away from it. Yet, it is the same chances of being the last slat painted. And so the question was on two plus two, how can you prove this? And some mathematicians got on there and put up all these complicated formulas. So there's a, there's, there's a symmetry argument that, that just leaps off the page. So, uh, what is that uh, argument? So the one page for anybody else. So what? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, so so, so you know, Maybe so you like, do. Starts, I mean, you have it. Let's see if you got it. Let's see. Oh, I'm not sure. Right. I mean, I'm not sure. I, I I can't I can't prove it yet. But like the very first sort of brain dead thing to notice is that uh, if you call the double zero sort of location zero, and then you number positive in one direction and and negative in the other direction. So the one just yeah. to its right is plus one and, and negative one. You know that. You know that for any for any n, the probability that slot n is the last one to be visited is is the same as the probability uh, that negative n. n. Yeah. Yeah. So that's visible. fine. But how does? But why should ne why should negative n plus one and, ne and negative n minus one? Uh, they're the same. But why should they be the same as? N you know, and, oh, and I have negative. no idea. I, 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 first okay. thing I said is I can't solve it yet. So uh, okay, okay. Yeah. well, I'm so, going to tell you. I'm going to tell you what I what I realized. And, and this was I just this is just a, this is a, a nice example of how you can. What I realized is that you're going to. Everybody was thinking about the ball and where it's going. I didn't think about the ball. I thought about a slat. I put myself in the position of being a slat. And what would I need to happen to myself to be the last one painted? And I realized that regardless of which slot I am, I would need two things to happen to me. First, I would need the ball to bump up against me on either side. I don't care which side. But I need that to happen somehow. I mean, it might take a long time for that to happen, it might, or, or in the case of the ones next to the double zero, it's happened immediately. But the thing is, Every single slat will have that happen to them, right? That's, that's a certainty. Every slat will have the, that first criteria occur to them for the, before the, the, the whole wheel is, is painted. If that whole wheel is going to get painted, then I guarantee you at some point in this journey, me, the slat, will have felt the ball up against my side. That has to happen because if otherwise, how do I get how do how do I get painted? Yeah. See what I'm saying? Then the second thing though is after after I first feel that happen to me, what has to happen next? The for me to be the last flat painted, I need that after the ball. Don't forget it. The other side hasn't been painted yet. Okay, when it, when, it, when the first time my my one of my, my left ribs get get hurt, my right rib is still it hasn't gone to me yet. I'm saying the very first time it's happened, so that means on my other side it's still un, uh, unpainted. 
So I need the ball to somehow make its way all the way over to the other side of me. So it has to first, two things have to happen. It has to first hit my one of my sides and then reverse force. It can't, it can't jump into me because if it jumps into me, that's not the last that's not the last one. But for me to be the very last one painted, it has to hit one side of me and then make it sway all the way around to the other side of me. Then, after that happens, then it can jump into me. Either immediately or later on. See what I'm saying? So if I'm, if I'm number 17, it, it has to hit me either on the left or right at some point, and then go all the way to the other side and hit that one, and then sometime after that, jump into me. That will make me the last slat painted. But the thing is, every slat has the exact same feelings. That's what I just said is true for every slat. So it's got to be equal chances. In other words, whichever slat that I, that I want to, 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 to look at, if for me to win with that slat, I need two things to happen, and only two things. It has to hit one side of me, and then make its way all the way around to the other side of me. Yeah. And the chances that the chances that that that, that it, it um, hits one side of me is a hundred percent. Before it actually gets into me, it has to hit one side of me, and then the others. So anyway, this was a an example of a yet another example of of. of using thought, I mean, that's my big thing, is using clever thought to, to, to try to answer problems that people are doing in some kind of formulaic way. And, uh, you know, that's, and, and so many people just automatically don't think of doing that. Even with these vaccines now, there, I, I read these things and it drives me crazy because, they, because somebody says something fallacious or hasn't thought of something or and I make and I also make connections I realize that's one of the things I do that's strange is I make connections between things for instance the thing I didn't like about Harrington's book he has a good book he had good books but he did one thing that annoyed me he would find famous problems to analyze and what he would he would use these problems to illustrate a concept that he had just written about. So he would write a concept, he'd write a uh, talk about a concept and find the famous problem. But the problem by doing it that way is that maybe the the famous hand if I, the famous hand doesn't quite fit into what he's trying to say. There's something about it that doesn't quite fit. So why wouldn't it be better to? Uh, for instance, um, make up the hand. That, so that perfectly, that perfectly fits the concept you're trying to illustrate. That's the way I write my books. I don't, I don't write about famous hands. I come up with hands that perfectly fit the concept I'm trying to illustrate. And now how does that have to do with vaccines? So uh, when they're giving people vaccines uh, and, they, and, they, and, they put, or, and they're testing them and they put them out in the world to see whether or not it protects them, why not just subject them to 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 the uh, virus? I mean, don't do it for people who are in who are in a lot of danger. But if they're willing to if they're willing to see whether the vaccine protects them, then why do they have to 
randomly see whether they were subjected to the virus. These are just some of the little silly things that uh, the people, they, because they, that's the way we used to do it. That's the way we always did it. That's the way, that's the way we learned to do it. There's just too much of that. Jump to a conclusions without bothering to sit down and think about it for a minute. So this is what you should start doing with your three-year-old. Uh, I don't know of any three-year-old questions immediately, but there are, uh, well, there is one actually. I don't know whether this can be taught, but if he gets it wrong, I think it's, you might be able to teach him to get it right, which is the marshmallow question. Uh, the marshmallow test? Yes. Give him the marshmallow test, and if he doesn't get it, don't just shrug your shoulders. Try to teach him to, to pass the marshmallow test. Yeah, I'm not going to uh, mention what it is because I'm sure everybody who's listening knows what the marshmallow test is. Yeah, right. it, people who care, I think. Yeah, it's 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 pretty well known. I mean, it's uh, I it's, suffice to say, I spend a lot, lot, lot of time thinking about how to how to uh, instill intellectual hygiene in, in my son. So I, I appreciate your thoughts in this direction. And well, uh, the one thing that you do when you're teaching him math is you. Uh, you try to make him come up with the idea as much as you can by himself. So, for instance, if you were if he was a little older and you were trying, and you show the person how to multiply um, eleven times fifteen in their head, and you say to them, "Well, what's ten times fifteen? And they say one fifty, and they say, "Well, this." And now you say, "Well, this is eleven times fifteen. So you have one more fifteen, right?" And then. Uh, Oh yeah, okay. That's uh, they said one sixty-five, and then the next thing you need to say to them is, okay. So now tell me how much nine times fifteen is. You 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 force them to rather than just saying, and you know you could do the same trick with nine, except this time you subtract fifteen. You don't say that. Let let them figure that part out. You let yes, let them figure that part out themselves. Because the more that a person has to think about how to get the answer, the more likely they'll remember it. I mean, math teachers are just terrible beyond belief. I mean, it's, they're, they're, they're terrible when, unless they're teaching somebody who's really good at math. They are terrible at teaching people who are not particularly good at math. I'm good at that, I guess, partly because when I learned math, when I, when I learned, you know, how to find a derivative of something, I was also terrible. Now, I had a little bit of different reason for being terrible. It wasn't so much because I was stupid. It was because I was eight. So, <laughs> but, it, but it wounds up being the same thing. So I knew how to, uh, so my father had to, had, to, had to dumb down or not. That's maybe not the right way to put it, but he knew how to get to the heart of the question and ask me questions that led me to that question. And these are all things that I think I'm, I'm good at doing, and uh, I don't get too much, not too many people. There, are, there, are, there is a, a segment of society, several thousand people who are like big fans of mine for this reason, but the average person doesn't, doesn't even know about any of these ideas. So I thought I'd talk about how Steve Wynn, the Steve Wynn story. You remember the Steve Wynn story, right? Or the, or as I said, the Larry Flynn story. Larry Flynn tried to fix the World Series of Poker. He tried to bribe people to, to lose to him so he could win the World Series of Poker and then make a million dollar from Doyle, 
who he bet with. These are all true stories, every one of them. Well, I'll, I'll do my part to encourage uh, and, and, people to, to read the book. I think it's both um, insightful in terms of the, um, some of these you know, modes of thinking that you suggest, and I also think that the stories are both, I mean, not even just the, just the juicy ones. I mean, I enjoyed some of the more autobiographical details as well, but I, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff. In now, some of those, yeah, some of the autobiographical, some of those autobiographies do not put my, I do not put myself in a bad light. I mean, frankly, I was too non-appalled by criminals. I found criminals, I didn't, I wasn't part of what they did, but I found them interesting. And as long as I didn't, they didn't ask me about anything else that they were doing, I uh, wasn't as horrified as maybe I should have been by being around them. Uh, so that part's true. Then again, I had a way of making, you read about how the guy who home invaded me at gunpoint applied for a job as he was robbing me. <laughs> right. That's a true story. That's absolutely true. Absolutely. Yeah. Why would you make that up? What? <laughs> yeah, why would I make that up? But uh, it, it did happen. And the, 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 the girl, the reason why people know about the runaway girl who I thought was 20 and turned out to be 16 was because I outed myself because not, she was beautiful. You can see pictures of, by the way, you know, she, she wound up writing a, um, ask me anything column 10 years later for, for two plus two. Are you aware of that? I don't know if I saw that. I do remember this incident when it first came up. That was when I was more active on, um, on two plus two. Yeah. Well, they, did you? But you did. So you didn't know that ten years later she moved back to Vegas with her mother. Well, I put that in the book. Yeah, so. no, I remember getting but, that and when she, from your book, but I did not know that. Yeah, I, but she did more than that. She then, she then subjected herself to an ask to a, a pretty interesting and and uh, and revealing ask me anything thread with hundreds and hundreds of of, of posts about it. And I'm supposed to be more guilty about it. I, I have a, I have a personality flaw that can't help remembering that this girl was so damn beautiful and we got along very well. And I'm supposed to be more guilty about that. I even put myself in the position of being with a 20 year old. So there's probably something wrong with me. Then again, anybody, as far as I'm concerned, that goes to a strip club, which I don't do is just as bad. I mean, they're all, they, they, they're trying to make uh they're trying to, to, to sweep under the rug that, uh, I mean, if you go look at these Me Too guys that get in trouble, they all have basically something in common. They were all nerdy, rich, and probably were annoyed that, that that's not enough to get them the beautiful young girls, you know? They're the Harvey Weinsteins and the uh, Charles, what's his name? And uh, I mean, just all of them, Dustin Hoffman. Steve Wynn. The whole, the, the, well, Steve Wynn was in a little bit of a different. He was a little different. He was a good-looking guy, and uh, and he what he did was not nearly as bad as what these other guys did. In fact, what he did, I mean, he he bribed masseuses. He didn't. I, I he didn't. Uh, I don't think he didn't put anybody's uh, jobs on the line. He probably got a little bit a bad a bad rap compared to let's say Bill Cosby oh, no, or no, uh, Matt Matt Wauer. What? I said no. I was he like, was, he no, wasn't I heard nothing he, about when that was on the scale of, of drugging people. Right. Plus, he wasn't nerdy. He could get a lot of girls. 
I'm talking about these other guys, you know? And so that's probably uh, why it's hard for me to feel as guilty about, not to mention that she's doing very well now, and then she almost certainly wouldn't have been. And if you remember in the book, I, I mentioned that uh, after the police figured out where she was and took her, took her back to her home state, they called me up and asked me if, if, if it was okay if they could send her back to me. The police did. And I, and I have a, I have documentation to prove that. So I did, I mean, I, I was good to her, but still I guess there's, there's a, there's some argument that it just doesn't matter. At some, at some age difference, it just doesn't matter and it just shouldn't be done. And then the, and then the craziest thing about my brain is that the first thing that comes to my mind is like right now I'm living and have been living for many years with a woman He's 35 and, and I'm uh, 72. So what's the first thing that comes to my mind is, uh, and this shows how I am a little bit weird. The first thing that comes to my mind, you know that, have you ever heard that uh, formula for what's the proper age for your female friend? It sounds familiar, you know, but the I, I never said it off the top of my head. Half your age plus seven. Okay. That's the right age. That's the right age. I don't know if they still believe that, but that used to be what they said there was the right age. So if you're 40, you want to be what you're supposed to be with a 27 year old. Or, and or if older. you're 20, that's, that's a minimum, right? That's not. You want, no, they're saying that's the ideal age oh, to be okay. with. The woman you're with, the ideal age is half your age plus seven. So I'm 72 and she's 35. So the first thing that comes to my mind is what is the algebra equation <laughs> that will tell me how many more years I have to wait. <laughs> I mean, literally, I'm not joking. That is the first thing that comes to my mind. I can't help it. So, so deep down, I probably should have been the mathematician because that is the first thing. So, uh, and probably it wouldn't be for most people. In fact, here she's walking in right now. So we're trying to figure out how old you will be when you're the proper age for me because the proper age is half your age plus seven. So like in 10 years, I'll be 82 and you'll be 45. So that, that's not, I guess not good enough. And when I, in, in, uh, in 20 years, I'll be 92 and you'll be 55. So does that get there? Yeah, that, that no, somewhere between that. But I mean, there's, a, there's an equation and that's the first thing that comes to my mind. So I, I'm not going to argue with people who think I'm a little weird. I just uh, argue with them who think that I, you know, that I'm uh, one of these deplorables. That I don't think I am. And in fact, even if I was, if you read my book, you won't be. So I, I find you how to not be a deplorable by what? <laughs> anyway, is there anything else you wanted to ask me? Uh, no, that was that was good. And I'm going to have to run actually. But uh, thanks, thanks for taking the time. Okay. Thanks for writing the the book, and hopefully we can uh, do this again after your next book comes up. Okay. Geeking, gambling, and grifting through Las Vegas. Uh, is Amazon the, the it's best always, it's always place to get that? For now, because they, they, they give you a super duper deal if you're willing to do it, uh, if you're willing to, to, to go just with them. And the book is $10, I think it's $10. And, no, it's $15 in, uh, in normal situation, and, and Kindle is $10. Or, but it's free on Kindle if you're one of those Kindle members. Yeah, the Kindle Unlimited. Yeah. Okay, well, this was this was interesting. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, enjoy the rest of your evening. And call me. And if you if you have any more you want to ask me about, don't, don't hesitate. I'll I'll answer it either for for just you or for everybody. All right, we'll do. Have a good night. Okay. Bye.
Tapped all 